Hi, and welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. I want to thank all you listeners for sharing, commenting, subscribing. We're at 1,060 subscribers now. Love to see those numbers going up and really enjoy the stories that some of you have shared about your own lives with us. Today, we have a special guest, Matt Palomari. He is an award-winning writer, musician, and sound healer. He has been studying shamanism all of his life and incorporates shamanic practices into his daily life as well into, as into his writing and teaching. Matt, also known as Mateo, has spent 30 years studying ayahuasca, its rituals and traditions, and its helper plants and he has done extended shamanic plant diets in the Peruvian Amazon for the last 25 years. Mateo has also studied and worked with numerous other visionary and healing plants found worldwide. He has 18 books in print in multiple genres and has taught a fantastic fiction workshop at the Southern California Writers' Conference and the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference for over 30 years. Today, we're going to talk about shamanism and one of his books, Pika Flor. Pika Flor is a roadmap of Mateo's lifelong search for truth, healing, and transformation that further explores the way spirit touches us in every moment of our existence and how most of us are caught up in the dramas that we have created in our lives and that blind us to a reality far greater than anything we can imagine with our rational minds, and how this is all simply a matter of awareness. So let's welcome Matt, and when he's in his other countries, Mateo, to visit with us here today. Welcome. Hi, Gail. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to say I always have to give a shout out because my last maybe 15 incredible guests have all been sent to me by uh, uh, Stanley Krippner. I love Stanley. So I always want to say thank you. Yes, and the, the world. It's he's he's just he's an amazing human being, and I just always like to give out send a shout of love to our Stanley. I love him. What I want to ask to begin with, which I ask every person that I have on my show, is what in your childhood or when you were growing up, was any of the things that were happening then part of what you do now today? Or was this path something that you acquired much, much later in life? Some people, when they're kids, they're already drawn, they've already speaking to spirits or they have experiences. Sometimes they have nothing and it's all of a sudden they have a car accident or some life-changing experience and they're on a spiritual path. So where did your where did your path begin? Well, I'm a, an aficionado of altered states. Mm-hmm. I love altered states. Now, I grew up in Boston and Dorchester, which is a tough neighborhood, Irish Catholic, you know, blue collar. And so even, you know, when I was probably three, I remember just going on the, the merry-go-round thing and getting dizzy, the spinning thing. Mm-hmm. And then not too long after that, I learned how to hyperventilate. We hyperventilate, and then you, your friend would squeeze you, and you would pass out. I love that. <laughs> then um, then I, right around the same time, I discovered cannabis 
and sniffing glue. I got caught up in sniffing glue for a while. Oh. Um, it was it was like basic training for other altered states. Mm-hmm. And then around 1971, I was turned on to LSD. And and then it was it had just you know within a few years recently been uh, made illegal. And we used to get it from uh, a chemist at MIT, which is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but we called it the Mental Institute for the Touched. <laughs> My husband spent many, many years there at the MIT Media Lab. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, the chemist went by the name of My Favorite Martian. Uh huh. And he had four way. It took me about eight times before I could handle a whole hit of LSD. It was really, back then, it seemed like the smaller it was, the more powerful it was. Mm-hmm. So I, I went on exploring everything I could find for some years. And then in my early 20s, I decided I need to go baseline and forget everything. I'm looking for some truth. I'm looking for some awareness. And I'm tired of, of just altering myself. And And they didn't have as many things as they do now. You know, there was... There was, you know, speed, there was downers, there was alcohol, but none of them really talked to me like the psychedelics did. Mm-hmm. So as part of that, um, f- first I was a vegetarian for 23 years. And I went 13 years, totally baseline. I wouldn't even take, uh, I wouldn't drink coffee. I wouldn't even take an aspirin if I had a headache. Mm-hmm. And I really cleared myself like that for all those years. And then I discovered Terrence McKenna. Uh-huh. And um in my humble opinion, we became friends by the way. Um what year was that? Let me see. Um uh, well, there's a whole story behind that. You want to hear that one? Go ahead. We're free to talk on okay. whatever we like. So it was my second year at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and I read a short story about um a guy who got some Uh, psychedelics from a shaman and he didn't pay attention to what the shaman told him and it was a horror story he ended up losing his mind and killing his girlfriend and dying and oh god so it it was in a writing workshop and the woman who ran the writing workshop she would read the work so nobody knew who wrote it so you'd get you know honest criticism so she read that story and i got a standing ovation and all these old acid heads came out of the woodwork. So this was like 1989. So this one woman came up to me, Marjorie Livingston, PhD. She had been one of the original participants um, in a Hawaiian LSD project back in the 50s. Oh. And she was, she was a psychologist, and she wrote a paper um, about that. It was published in a Hawaiian medical journal. She begged me for the story, so of course I gave it to her. Mm-hmm. She loved it. And then, um, like a month later, I get a box in the mail of cassette tapes from, from Marjorie. And she was 78 at the time. She had the most bright blue, beautiful, aware, blue eyes. And you know, one of her things was nobody of her generation understood what she went through because it wasn't Nobody knew anything that back then, you know, relatively speaking. So I get this box of cassette tapes and I open it up and it was like a half a dozen of them. And it was Terrence McKenna. So I'm listening and I'm like, who is this weirdo guy? Because you know, Terrence, Mr. Rogers on acid, right? Well, you know, it's a right? 
Was he part of the uh, Merry Pranksters bus? No. No, he wasn't. I have a whole other story. Yeah, I have a whole other story behind that. Oh, okay. <laughs> we can go on forever. But anyway, um, she sent me those tapes and I heard Terrence. And, and first I thought he's a weirdo. Then I started to listen to what he was saying. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, psychedelics and spirituality? Are you kidding me? So I read Food of the Gods, which I think was his best book. I went out solo on my own. I spent $1,000. I bought all the stuff, and I, it took me a few tries and fails, and I grew my own mushrooms and got back into it that way. And then I found out about the entheobotany seminars, which were going on at the time. And I went up to San Francisco in 1996 for the first one, and I was hooked. And I got to know Terrence very well. And, you know, Terrence always had a literary bent. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Entheobotany Seminars in 1998 in Ushmal, in the Yucatan. And I gave Terrence a copy of uh, The Small Dark Room of the Soul, which was my first published short story collection. And he invited me out to visit him in uh, Hawaii and all that. But I, I couldn't get out there for different reasons. But he loved my work. So... Um, a little side thing, um, when I first met Stanley, I heard him speak, and I showed him the manuscript for my historical novel, In Without Evil, and he really tried to get it, help me get it published, and it never went anywhere but that. So um, I sent him a copy of The Small Dark Room of the Soul, and I said, you know, this probably isn't your cup of tea, but I really appreciate the fact that you went to bat for me. So I just wanted to send you this. Well, a month later, I get a postcard from Stanley. Ray Bradbury was right. My God, I just love your writing. And, and he was just going on, right? <laughs> so Stanley and I are huge fans of each other. Mm -hmm. And he actually, uh, I put him in a novel as a character. He let me do that. That's wonderful. Yeah, so um, so I had that connection with, I wanted to tell you that little side story because Stanley's our thing in common and we both love him so much. So um, I sent that to Terrence. Well, as things progressed, and I went to a number of entheobotany seminars with Terrence, he died, if I remember right, it was 2001. Mm -hmm. um, before he died, Land Without Evil came out right in 2000. It was actually November of 1999. And I knew that he was dying and I knew that he was doing um, the All Chemical Arts Festival in Hawaii, but I couldn't go. So I sent a copy of the book. Terrence got the absolute very first copy from the printing of Land Without Evil, because right when that all was happening was right when Land Without Evil was coming out, Land Without Evil was coming out. And so I was, you know, working with my publisher and his promotions and all that stuff. So um, he got the book. He was going around the whole thing. It may very well have been the last book he ever read. I will never know. But he was going around the whole thing reading the book. Wow. And he got the very first book. So, you know, I had that really deep. And I had it personally delivered by a good friend, a mutual friend. And uh, another minor side story, when Terrence passed away, this same good friend actually lived in his house and took care of it for about six years after he died in Hawaii. Mm. So when I thought psychedelics and spirituality you got to be kidding me wow and then i started really digging and then i started to find out about the mayan culture and other cultures and visionary plants and all that history that has basically been run over by western you know missionaries and jesuits and all that stuff um 
so I started digging into it. I went to that entheobotany seminar. I met the tribe, as I like to call it. Um, so I got, you know, got to be friends with Terrence McKenna and, and Paul Stamets. Did you um, meet Timothy? No, that was that was a little bit after Timothy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Terrence kind of picked up the picked up the the moniker after after uh, Timothy. As I understand it, Timothy was lecturing somewhere, and he introduced Terrence. And then I think at another time, Timothy couldn't make the lecture, and Terrence took over. And Terrence became like the psychedelic bard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to meet, um, you know, Sasha, Ann and Sasha Shogun. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Not. Uh, uh, I'm never sure what things you should say on these podcasts. <laughs> I hear you. Well, well, we'll leave it at that. But yes, uh, I and in fact, uh, our very dear friend Jean Malay had her goodbye party here at my house before, when she had her a uh, very uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh-huh. So two months before she passed, we had a huge party here for her. With oh, I had nothing to do with the invitation list. She invited everyone she wanted, mm-hmm. and Stanley mentioned that in my house there were the chemist who had made over millions and millions of hits of acid. There you go. So, uh, but Sasha had passed away already, though I had met him at a MAPS conference. Okay. Uh, uh, but his wife came and she yeah. looked as beautiful as ever. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was her daughter. Somebody brought her here so that she could be at this um, uh, party. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the last time that I saw her. And um, and it was an amazing crowd of people. I think uh, Stanley mentioned also not only about the amount of acid that had been made on the guests that were here, but also that the IQ level of all the people, there were like 38 people that showed up. He said the IQ level in the room would probably blow the roof off the house. <laughs> oh, yeah, I could believe that. They Ann and Sasha were both very good to me. We had some good times, and Ann actually really encouraged me to dig into shadow work. Mm-hmm. She was very instrumental in convincing um, to push me, which helped me to actually start off writing my first memoirs. And I used to have a blast with Sasha because we used to sit there and just trade bad puns all day, like, <laughs> you know, like a ping pong game. I I have right here. This was the day I met Timothy Leary. Oh, uh, nice. And it was in a, um, uh, this is my husband, who was a very dear friend of Timothy. He met him at the MIT Media Lab. Okay, yeah, all right. uh, He was very interested in all the, that, all that kind of VR and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I got to know him in the last, the last two years of his life. Okay. And um, uh, and in fact, our daughter was, I have a picture of Robert Anton Wilson and oh Timothy boy. Leary holding my four-month-old daughter. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was, you know, that was 27 years ago. Where did it go, right? Ah, uh, it went very fast. Yeah. So, so now I see that you've really been into altered states and this kind of experimentation and you know, so since you were young, mm-hmm. it's not something that happened later in life in your desire to feel and experience altered states of reality. Correct? Yeah, so it's is, been a passion. Yes. And so is that which must be what got you started on your trips traveling to 
Peru and South America, Central America, I thought we'd talk a little bit about shamans and how they might have affected your life or what your what would be your definition of what a shaman is or what shamanism is. Sure. So what I always like to say is that shamanism is the world's oldest religion. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I'm even at fault because it's not a religion. It's a spiritual system of belief. It's the very first. Every single religion in the world has its roots in shamanism. Mm-hmm. From the first time somebody had any level of awareness and looked up at the stars and looked at nature around them and said, what does this all mean? That was like the beginning of it. So it was interesting. I, I took a course in anthropology, first off, and all that stuff I'd already been studying on my own. And then um, my professor at the time, who had actually had been at UCLA with Carlos Castaneda, um, he did an honors course. It was called uh, A Forest of Symbols, Orientation and Meaning to South American Indian Religions. Wow. And I took that, and I found out about the story that I wrote about in Land Without Evil. And I thought to myself, this is an amazing story. Nobody's written this. And I got obsessed. And I researched it for about two and a half years. I wrote it, the first draft, in about 15 months. And I literally finished in a fever. Mm-hmm. So all of the things um, that have been replied to shamanism has rung true for me. And I was raised Catholic. I bailed on the Catholic church when I was probably about seven. <laughs> the time. Um, yeah, 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 you know. Uh, and, you know, it was an Irish Catholic neighborhood. Um, and all the hypocrisy and all the crap. I was like, I don't want anything. I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with any of this. And I just kept digging. I've always been passionate about the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, now, truth is always subjective to a large degree. But there's still truth. And I've always hated phonies and and you know people in power and I, I look at the you know I hated the system uh, I hated all of that and I was just always looking to go my own way and I've always kind of gone my own way so when I started really digging into shamanism and figuring out that the roots of it every single religion has shamanic elements in it and, and would you say that was like 30 years ago you started that or longer uh, I gotta think about that. Let me. Well, that that course that I took that spurred land without evil. Let me see. When I took that course, that had to be around uh, 1995, maybe. Um, so yeah, so, about, so over 30 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the book was very well received. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I got a lot of really great nods. It was. I don't know that it is now, but if you looked it up in Lonely Planet Travel Guide and you wanted to find out about the history of Paraguay, they said they they recommended my book. Wow. Yeah, and it was also the top fiction pick of the Paraguayan Embassy. Um, I don't know anymore. That was all those years ago. I don't know that that's all relevant now. Mm-hmm. The other wonderful thing that happened is it got turned into an amazing stage show. Um, we did eight shows in Austin, Texas. Uh, we sold out opening night and the two closing nights. There were 50 people in the cast and crew. And this show was about? The Land Without Evil show. Um, it, it had aerialists, video projection, costumes, feathers, music. Um, wow. And then PBS made a show about the making of the show. 
Uh-huh. So the show about the making of the show got an Emmy nomination. Wow, congratulations. Um, but but the fact that it got turned into such a wonderful production, um, and she took elements, the, the director, we collaborated on the script. She took elements, the, the primary elements of the story and made it. And you know, all the stuff about that was going on about 2012 and the Mayan calendar and all those things mm-hmm. and transformation, as fate would have it, that show was like a week before. It was December like 16th to like the 20th or something like that. Um, and it was right on the cusp of that. And she made it a point that um, aside from it being the show, that every show was kind of like a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and people came out saying that they felt transformed by the show. Yes. So I got really deep into that. I, I read the, not only did I read the, Uh Uh-oh, I've lost you. Uh, He had like 10 books, you know. I let him do the bibliographies. Okay, wait, we're having some kind of internet. I found these other books. I found some really expensive, obscure books on shamanism. Um, I got those. I inhaled all of that. And then the book started writing itself. And at one point, I was working in corporate America. I have have an extensive background in technology. Mm -hmm. And when it was really going, I was getting up at 4.30 every morning and writing until about 7.30, and then work could have what was left of my brains, but the, the <laughs> book, you know, really became my passion. Right. Um, and and that's always, I considered it to be my flagship. It's always been my calling card. Um, I mean, I really did my, my homework. I did my research mm-hmm. and I went on with that. And then I started getting into more books and it's all had sh- sh- primarily shamanic underpinnings. I, I want to say, um... For me, my experiences with shamans was me receiving a healing or a cleansing, or I would be part of a ceremony that a shaman was conducting. Did you start off having personal experiences yourself with shamans in different countries when you were traveling where they would do healings with you? Or what was your one-on-one experience with shamans? Well, first off, my mentor at the time, he just passed away about six months ago. He was 90, so he had a good life. Mm-hmm. But um, he was bringing shamans up from Peru. And we were doing ceremonies. So the first time the first time I did it, it was a mixed group. And I had my publisher's son with me. She wanted me to bring her son. He was in his 20s. And he um, he kind of lost his mind. And I ended up having to babysit him. Uh, and I was, but all the experience I had prior to that allowed me to, okay, I was tripping and then I could change channels and focus on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I felt very good about that. So that was like a test for me. And then he brought the shaman up and I did a ceremony with him and I had the time of my life. I was having a great time and I was drumming away in this and that. And they had to come over to me and tell me, we, we need you to quiet down because everybody else is having a hard time. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so um, I, I calmed down like that. But when, when the ceremony was over, the shaman came over to me and he leaned down right in my face and he said to me, the mother loves you. Oh. And then I was hooked. Uh-huh. So soon after that, I got to do my first uh, shamanic plant diet down in the Amazon, in the Peruvian Amazon. 
that was in 2000. And I had a, a, a tremendously life-changing, supernatural, magical, transforming experience that really set me going. So after that, I had to just keep going back. So just this past, past October was my 13th diet. Wow. Um, I went, I was honored. My mentor insisted that I go in 2015, which was his last time going. He was in his 80s then. Mm-hmm. And he insisted, he comped me. You have to be there because I had gone more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I went, even though he comped me, I, I had to like get my plane tickets on credit cards. I was having a hard time financially at the time. But um, I did that. And then when I went this past October, that was the first time in seven years um, since I'd been down there. But in between, um, I've been leading ceremonies for a number of years um, in, in different groups. And I've actually studied in four different traditions. But this one that these guys do, they're mestizos, which is mixed race. But their tradition is the oldest and the purest um, that I've seen. What group is this that you're saying? It's not even a group. Um, they're just people that have been, my mentor found them many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was working with one and then two. And then, and that's when I met Tito. Ah. Uh, Tito came maybe my third year in the jungle. So we spent a few days in the jungle. Um, and then I, he'd come up from time to time and I did ceremonies with him. And then, like I said, I actually got to perform with him. Um, and, and, you know, we've been good friends all along. It's been maybe five years since I've seen him now. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Mateo is re, uh, speaking about Tito La Rosa. So if you look his name up, Tito La Rosa, you'll find that there's YouTube videos and you can hear his, he's a sound healer and he can play any instrument and uh, he's come to my home and done flower ceremonies here. And one time I asked him, what's your favorite instrument? Because he has so many there to pick mm. from. And he said, my favorite instrument is a flute that I got in Hawaii and I play with my nose. And wow. that's his favorite instrument. And he would play with his nose and it was beautiful. So <laughs> anyone who's hearing this really, I'm sure both uh, Mateo and I are highly recommending you hear his healing sound. He's an amazing musician. He's also, I'm he- I've heard in his home in Cusco that like the Peruvian government brings instruments to him when they find rare instruments. And I think he's like the keeper or he's like has sort of a museum of all these ancient pieces and he's the one who knows how to play them. So that's Tito La Rosa. Yeah, he plays all pre-Columbian instruments. He's got a number of CDs out. And his most well-known one is The Prophecy of the Eagle and the Condor. And he recorded it with Mary Youngblood, who's a Native American flautist. And I do, I think they got a uh, a Grammy for that. Wow. That's been like, that's been some years. That's been 10, 15 years. But yes, um, he's a he's a character. He's 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 a he's a coyote. He's a you know, he's a he's a trickster. Yes, he remarried a young woman, and I think they've have two children now. Yeah, and uh, he's—I heard he's the happiest he's been. That he's just incredibly happy. He—he he deserves it. He's—he's he's a character. And when you, I remember you made me think about this playing with his nose. I remember when we were in the jungle together. He would pick up 
all these weird things that he would find. And then he would tap on them and he would blow into them and he was looking to try to get sound out of it. And it was really impressive. He was, he was, he was, he was like a little kid you know, trying to find what he could do with it. Yes. Well, he, he does have the spirit of, of, of a child's curiosity. Yes. <laughs> He's a wonderful it. soul. Yeah. So, so back to our shamans, because I want to get to our book. Sure. And I don't want to miss talking about our book, but first on our shamans, just a few more questions. Have you yourself had an experience of being initiated as a shaman? Or do you find that you've learned so many things that you feel sort of like a, a researcher or a, a person who could explain? Because, you know, a lot of people call themselves shamans and they're not shamans. Right. And there's a lot of that going on out there and people go, you know, and there's so much, uh, I don't know what the word is, fake or whatever it is. And or ones that say, oh, I've been with the wheat holes and now I'm a shaman and now you can pay two thousand dollars and I'm going to teach you how to be a shaman. Anyhow, my shamanic experiences, I don't know how yours are, but mine, which cross, you know, quite a few different cultures have never had anything to do with money. No one right. ever asked me for money. No one. There was there's always the common courtesy of giving a thank you gift, just like you would do if you stayed in someone's home. Right. If someone does a healing or a blessing with you, it's it's a it's a very nice reciprocal thing to give back something, but whatever it is that you would like. Yeah. The shaman doesn't say, all right, for fifty dollars now I'll give you do this to you. Right. So I was wondering what that's my experience. I was wondering what your experience is. Well, you know, this is one of my pet peeves. What you're talking about is what I call guru-itis. <laughs> um, it, you know, In case like anyone didn't hear it, guru-itis. Guru-itis, yeah. That's, <laughs> either I made it up or I stole it. I don't know. I'm a writer. <laughs> but it drives me nuts. Yes. Because, like, like, like so I, like, I give a lecture on shamanism. And some cute little 23-year-old hottie would come up to me. Oh, yeah, my boyfriend's a shaman. Here's his business card. And I'd be like, you know, <laughs> it, it just makes me crazy. So I don't know about a formal initiation, but um, one of the things I did, I did a two-year shamanic study course. We met every two months. So we go, we went into the Amazon and uh, spent extensive time with the Shipibo Indians down there. Was this with Michael Horner? No, it's a um, Power Path Seminars, um, Jose and Lena Stevens. Mm -hmm. They're in New Mexico, and they have 1,200 acres uh, Eagle Bear Ranch. Mm -hmm. So every two months, we go, we went into the Amazon, spent extensive time at the Chapeebos working with ayahuasca. We spent probably uh, a month and a month and a half uh, up in the Andes working with San Pedro. Um, and I've done extensive work with uh, coca, the coca plant. And then um, we would go to their land in New Mexico and we would do wilderness solos. We would do like three days with just San Pedro and a little bit of nutrition, like a, a little drink thing, but nothing solid like that. And we would do wilderness solos. And then we went up to the Four Corners area, uh, Chaco Canyon and other places, and we did medicine work there. We went up to Machu Picchu and we did a whole day up there of San Pedro uh, with, with some shamans up there. So I did all that. And then um, the other guys that I work with, I have worked with over the years where I met Tito, I started singing with them way back. 
And the reason I started singing initially is so because I was nauseous. <laughs> and if I sing, and I'm a singer anyway. But oh, if, so that's good. Yeah, but if I sang, um, it would take my mind off of my, my, my nausea, right? And then I started singing, and they started really liking it. And then they started encouraging me, and then they started teaching me songs. So um, as things evolved and moved forward over the years, um, about six or seven years ago, they could no longer come up here like they used to. They used to come up twice a year in the spring and the fall. Mm -hmm. So for many years, we would, they would come up. We would do three ceremonies in the spring, three ceremonies in the fall. And then in the fall, we would go down and do the 10-day plant diet. And we would work not only with ayahuasca, but numerous other plants. So I did that regularly for all those years. And then when, when they could not come up anymore, um, we, we continued the ceremonies. And then my mentor, his health was declining and he had heart problems. So he couldn't do it anymore. So he turned the ceremonies over to us. And the shamans that I worked with um, gave us their blessing. They knew me. Oh, Mateo's singing. Good. You know, he, he, he's singing the Icaros. He's a guy. Because all those years I did it. So, you know, I, I never had the formal formal initiation like you did, but, you know, 13 dietes with those guys. And, I think and, you had quite the initiation. Yeah, yeah. And many with, of with them, the, right. <laughs> yeah, and I work with the Shipibos. They, I spent a lot of time in their village. So, you know, in that respect, with my experience, you could say I've been initiated, but never like a formal one like you had. Mm -hmm. um, but I assumed, I assumed the mantle. And now that my mentor has passed away and I'm actually leading two different groups, um, to me, it's very important to carry the torch. Yes. Are you in the L.A. area or where are you located? I'm in, I'm in San Diego. Oh, San Diego area. Yeah, that's where I live. I do a lot of work up around the L.A. area. Mm -hmm. um, officially, all the ayahuasca I do is in Peru out of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the official party line. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've done a lot of work with a lot of different people with it. And then it's uh, worked its way into my writing um, in terms of how I teach and all that. Um, the whole so idea. Is, this shamanism has not only affected your everyday life, it's also been part, become part of your work, the experiences. Yeah, there's um, the whole, I don't know if, how much you're familiar with Joseph, Joseph Campbell's work. Mm -hmm. But the hero's journey actually began with shamanism. Mm -hmm. When shamans go to the underworld and they're doing soul retrieval and those things, in, 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 traditionally speaking um, and anthropologically speaking, that's a big word, um, they go to the underworld and in cultures they get dismembered um they in some cultures they get dismembered and their bones get replaced with quartz this is all in the visionary state obviously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but they go there and they have a death in the underworld yes. and they are reborn that is the essence of the hero's journey mm -hmm. is facing death going through that and having a massive transformation so that you come out, you don't leave as the hero, you come back as the hero. Yes. And if you study literature at all, and the, the best stories that we have are all the hero's journey. Harry Potter, 
is follows the hero's journey to a T. Mm -hmm. So doesn't uh, Star Wars, for sure. In fact, there's a wonderful segment um, of George Lucas being interviewed. Um, I can't think of his name right now, but about, about the fact that um, Star Wars was based on the hero's journey. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name. He's passed away a few years ago, but he had a show on uh, Mental Block. But but anyway, it, it follows the hero's journey exactly. And the heroes, if you watch any any movies or anything, they always start off as the reluctant hero. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to be the hero. They don't want to leave their home. Everything is great. And then something upsets the balance and the uh, the journey is to reset the balance. You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey are great examples. And they all follow that archetype of the hero's journey. Well, I find when I talk to, uh, uh, I used to do some, uh, email answering for people that would have psychic experiences, uh -huh. not know what to do, or were in fear, or, and they would be writing to the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and I would be answering what these people's problems were, and I would talk with them. We'd have two or three emails before we'd, and we'd have it all kind of cleared up by time the second or third email. And the thing that I found common in almost all of them was that there was, if they would go back in time, they would find there was some sort of trauma or things that they had to go through that brought them to this next level of what they were dealing with in their life. It was never that they lived sort of a, you know, father knows best kind of life or anything, <laughs> yeah. but that they all had challenges. And it doesn't matter what culture it is. It's nope. also often I found, and myself included when I say these things, where the persons have been faced with near death uh -huh. or they've had, um, and all those different things like this lead you more on this shamanic path. And I think the reason is because you are also then enveloped with a tremendous amount of compassion and understanding you would not have had until you've actually, like that's like therapists mean well, but a lot of therapists have only book knowledge therapists. They don't mm -hmm. know what that trauma feels like, or they don't know what it's like to be betrayed in those ways or whatever it is that's the teaching. Yeah. And that all seems like part of that traveling on that hero's journey that there's, oh, it's never a smooth ride. Never, ever. It's never a smooth never. ride. So what I'd like to move on to, because I want to get all of our stuff in that I want to talk about, and this doesn't leave the shamanic issue, and this brings more of shamanism in, mm -hmm. is that I read your book, I finished your book last night, Peak Bless of you. Floor. Bless and you. I sat outside with my laptop, or no, it was my iPad, and I sat outside uh, and read the entire thing outdoors while all the birds were making mm. sounds all around me. Yeah. And they were, I, I want to, you know, I want you to talk about the book, but I just want to bring up a couple of highlights that really, you know, I was hoping you could first share with our audience because I learned so, the illustrations in the book are incredible. The explanations of the life of a hummingbird. I learned more about hummingbirds in your book than I ever could have imagined. So it was combined with factual information and then other information I'd always wondered about. And there was one line in your book on page um, uh, 12, no, page 84. Hmm. 
And it was that, and when you wrote this, I said, oh my God, this is what I've been trying to say. It's really true now. <laughs> I've always had a relationship with hummingbirds uh-huh. and I have two feeders outside my kitchen door and they, they, they're there, you know, they're always being fed. And I told my husband a couple of times, I said, you know, when the feeder is out, they come right up to my face and tell me we need yeah. more food now, Gail. You bet. I thought I was crazy when I was saying this to him, but I kept happening. Oh, I said, they know it's me. I said, they want me to feed them. Oh, yeah. And we have a connection. And then I read in your book that scientifically having been studied, they do recognize the person who's feeding them. You so bet. I was so happy to read that. I can't tell you. Just, I mean, I didn't mind being crazy, but it made me still feel validated in my relationship with the hummingbirds and there's so much about them that uh, you know I have numerous questions but I figured we should just start with the basic beginning and see how much we can get in in our time but if you could start with just the factual things which I thought were phenomenal to learn about just just the way the wing actually flutters that it's not up and down like this so I was wondering if you could first share the actual factual things and then we could go into the spiritual aspects of the hummingbird, how you experienced the hummingbird as a uh, totem. Mm-hmm. And also if you could share, I know this is a big questions. That's okay. If you could share some of the amazing stories I read in this book relating to the Hopi or the Aztec or the mm-hmm. Iroquois. Or, so uh, listeners, I found this to be a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Oh, bless and, you. Uh, it, it was uh, informative on a spiritual level and on a factual level. And I thought that was also a great combination to find in a book, you know, museum quality photos of what the inside of a hummingbird looks like and how the beak, I mean, I was fascinated on the drawings you had of the beak. Yeah. Anyways, and when you're talking, maybe you could sit back just a little bit because I keep getting some other flashes that come. There we go. Perfect. All right. All right. I, much I took better. my glasses off and I'm leaning in. So. Okay, no, I understand. <laughs> so that was a big loaded question, but it kind of starts with, you know, the facts of the of, mm-hmm. of the of the hummingbird and then your experiences with the hummingbird, who the hummingbird plays in, you know, an incredible history of cultures. Mm-hmm. It's so, I'll I'll tell you a few facts and figures, and then let me do a little bit of the spirituality that drove it. And then we can get back to the facts and figures, if that's right. acceptable. Okay. So uh, in terms of facts and figures, in relationship to their size, hummingbirds have the biggest heart of any animal, period, in relationship to their size. And they, their heart beats at a highly rapid rate, and their wings move in a figure eight which is the infinity. And I have a book called The Infinity Zone all about that. But that's where the power is, right? And and like no other bird, they can go up and down and backwards and forwards. And there are colors when the sunlight hits them. Iridescent. Beautiful. So um, my second year in the jungle... I was working with the shamans, the two primary ones, and their mentor. And I was in a ceremony, and I was sitting cross-legged, and my legs started flapping on their own. (laughs) It was exquisite. 
I wasn't doing it. I'm just one. They're going, and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. I hope this never ends. And for a moment, for oh, a few minutes or however long it was, um, uh, at first I was a butterfly, and then I turned into a bird with particular kind of feathers. And I was flying around through the mountains, just having a time of my life. But I didn't quite know what was going on. But I was exquisite. My body was like on autopilot. So the next day, I was in my, my the, the little, the, the thing that's behind me is my tombo where I spend most of my time. When you do the diets, you're mostly by yourself. You meet for ceremonies, but you're really mostly by yourself. Mm. So I'm in my tombo and the old time shaman comes up. And I, and I said, Guillermo, que es la abuela? Because he knew my legs were flapping. And he gives me this big smile and he goes, el condor. And I got it. The, the feathers that I saw. And by the way, Tito has major condor mojo. Um, oh, his feathers. He did I a feather healing on me. So badly. <laughs> it, it melted me. I just broke down bawling when Tito did. And that was part of sort of my condor initiation. So then, uh, a little while after that, I joined that two-year shamanic study group, and they were looking for names, and I kept my mouth shut. And we ended up being the Condors. Really? So um, I was big Condor for, I don't know, maybe five years, six years. And then one night, I was in another ceremony, and my legs started flapping. And then they started going a mile a minute. And my head started going back and forth like this. And if I didn't have the experience that I had, I would have freaked out. I mean, I almost hurt myself. It was, it was, I mean, I was, my legs were going a million miles an hour. And my head's going like this. And my visions were just pastel, neon, just beautiful, high frequency. And I was just totally lost and ecstatic and just in bliss. I didn't quite know what was going on. I knew it wasn't Condor anymore. So the next day when we were integrating, one of my buddies said, well, I knew it was going to be a good ceremony because just before the ceremony started, a hummingbird came up and got right in my face. Right when he said that, all in the same moment, not only did I realize that I was a hummingbird, but my girlfriend who was with me at the time beside me said to me, you are the hummingbird. I mean, it all happened like at the same time. It was just like, mm -hmm. and I was hooked. So then I became Picaflor, and many of my Peruvian friends and shamanic people know me as Picaflor. I want to. Picaflor is the Spanish name. For... Yeah, Picaflor. So in in Mexico they call it colibri, but in Peru it's Picaflor. Picar is to bite or sting, and flora is flower. So it's spider sting flower, mm -hmm. pica flora. And there's songs. I sing songs to pica flora and all that. And in fact, when I'm in ceremony and my buddy Renee starts playing some of the flute, she loves it. And, all, and he starts playing and all of a sudden my legs start going and I start going and it's like, oh my God, I'm Luke, right? We're, we're, we're taking off here, right? <laughs> and now just a little bit of a distinction. My first memoir is called Spirit Matters. Mm -hmm. And then the sequel to Spirit Matters, which is the next 20 years of my plant diets, is actually Pica Flora. And then the book you read is called Pica Flores, with an ES, so it's the plural. And I knew it was close, but I wanted to really 
honor them. So I put the spirituality in there. I did all the research. I found, you know, those wonderful diagrams and all those things. And I have everywhere, you know, in my windows, I have big stained glass hummingbirds. And you look all over my house. Somebody saved me a hummingbird. Um, it, it crashed and died, and they preserved it, and they gave it to me mm. as a gift. So that's in the middle of my shamanic altar. And everywhere you look around my house, you'll see hummingbird stuff. Because it, as you know, when you have a totem like that and you really want to honor them. Do you have them reminder. in your yard? I'm sorry? Do you have them in your yard? Or are they a, a bird in San Diego? They're big in San Diego, but they've been messing with me. Oh. Because I put out the feeder and they haven't been eating from the feeder. At one time they did, then they stopped and they haven't. But I planted some really big um, lavender outside of my window. And I'm hoping it's the summer. For, I've only been in this place a little over a year. So I'm hoping in the summer that they figure it out and come and do that. But even um, pretty much every time I did a wilderness solo, they would come up right up to me just like that. Mm -hmm. One time, one was by my ear. If he wasn't touching my ear, he was like, it was that, that, you know, that, that, that buzz, that hum, right? And I was just all excited and I'm like, don't move. Oh my God, this is so cool. You know, thank you for noticing me. You know, like yes. that. And every single time I did a wilderness solo, one would come. And I found out later that the mentor of the people that I was working with was a Weechul shaman. Mm -hmm. um, he died and he said, when he died, he said, I'm the hummingbird and I'm going to come back as the hummingbird. So, what was his name? Um, you know, I don't remember, but it, but this is with Jose and Lena Stevens. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember right now. Um, so I've had this magical thing, and and then now when I lead ceremonies, for years and years and years, I always just took a full dose up front. Let's get it over with. Let's take off. But now that I'm leading, I take usually a quarter or a third because I, I'm responsible for everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. So I can't go far. And I don't need to at this point. I'm there for everybody else. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, with ayahuasca, you think you're taking a small dose, but you can never really know the potency of the medicine. I've never tried it. It's not when for I, everybody. I've um, asked people about it. They've said... Just think it's similar to an acid trip. Did you think that since you've done both, you know what they both. So I, I, I don't know. I've never been, I've never tried. I've had people ask if I would open my place to having ceremony, but I never have because I feel I would be too responsible for all the people. It's, I thoroughly, thoroughly screen everybody. Yes. You have to be pure. You can't be on any um, antidepressants, uh, anything like MDMA. Uh, anything you really have to be as pure as possible going in mm -hmm. and in the jungle they call it la purga which is the purge and you can often have it coming out both ends mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it a little bit ago uh, growth is not fun growth is not easy growth is always painful of course the results are well worth it but you got to be ready to to subject yourself to a lot of discomfort I think that's one of the problems that when you hear these news articles about kids running to Peru and taking these 
uh, journeys and they're not really finding actually qualified people like yourself. Yeah. And then they have some kind of scary, crazy experience. Yep. This is what, this is the, that's the, the not good media uh, showing the negative sides. Of course. But right. when a person researches and finds somebody who has many years of experience and knowledge, then it can be a really worthwhile experience to do this. I, I agree, but I want to reiterate that it's not for everybody. No. And I can work with people without, without medicines. Mm -hmm. But for many years, I had a personal coach. She cost me a lot of money. And I did sessions with her once a week for know, maybe five years or something. Oh, wow. And everybody that she worked with who was trying ayahuasca, she told every single one of them to stop. Mm -hmm. except me oh she told, <laughs> yeah she told me to keep doing it uh -huh. and it took me some years to for what she was doing in terms of getting into the shadow and the subpersonalities, and what I was doing with ayahuasca it took me four or five years but I finally figured it out so it's both a similar process it's just two different approaches and you know I'm, I'm a known hardhead I've always been Mr. I've always been a kamikaze, whether I like it or not. <laughs> you know, I hear the stuff about microdosing and I'm like, what? <laughs> we certainly didn't have that when I was coming up. Uh, also, I know that when I dabbled in those psychedelic drugs, it was back in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh -huh. And I've never had any of the current uh, psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. But I hear that the kind that we were taking back then are like 10 times stronger than what's being given out yeah. now. I think I agree. And and so they're they're having it. And I'm I'm a very sensitive person. So any of these things I have to take a much smaller dose than another person. Yeah. Um, except when I did try San Pedro and the shaman said he was looking around the circle and I was like, eh. and he looked at me and he said, Give her more. <laughs> you, you need to take a lot of that. Yes. And it was, I didn't have any negative experience like throwing up or anything uh -huh. from the tea. And I didn't, I, all I kept saying was, I don't know, this didn't seem like anything. And then when he gave me the larger amount, I spent the rest of the evening holding a piece of meteor rock that he had had uh -huh. and just traveling with this meteor rock uh -huh. and having this lovely whatever it was, kind of joining in with this meteor. Uh -huh. uh, but other than that, I've never, I've never done it again. I don't know, you know, it, it grows everywhere. Uh -huh. uh, it was a shaman who came from Ecuador and he prepared everything in the proper way. I think it was 36 hours it took him of cooking it to make the tea that we all drank. And that was interesting, but uh, but really, I've not had any kind of experience like that, the intense psychedelic ones since since the early seventies. Yeah, uh, yeah. When I when I, uh, when I first did San Pedro, I had already been working with ayahuasca for like eight or ten years. Mm -hmm. So I was taking the dose, and I'm like, what, what? So what? That that's what I kept saying, and everybody yeah. else in the room was like, oh, and I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, it took me a while to 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 cultivate the subtleties, if that makes any sense. Yes, that's what it, it was. That's exactly. It's a different plant. Yes. And yes, it's and I know people who specifically just work with that. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I've just been hooked by the ayahuasca. When I, when I first read about, okay, the vine of the soul and the vine of death, I got to try that. Well, I just want to bring us back a little bit to uh, Pika Floor mm -hmm. because I have some more questions. And the yes. one topic I don't want to forget, which can be our last one at the end, mm -hmm. is I want to talk about the wind. But before we get to the wind, uh, I was wondering if you might share just at least one or two mythological stories that you've read and know are truly from that culture of what their experience of hummingbird means. Well, because your book gave so many different yeah, tribes sure. and stories. There's one of my favorite Peruvian myths, uh, Inca, pre Inca, actually. And hummingbirds have been known to travel on the backs of condors. Wow. So there's a a wonderful myth that um, one day, well, oh, let me back up just a second. In the Inca world, worlds, or trilogy, there are three worlds. There's the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world. The upper world is a condor, which is represented by the rose color, and it's love. Mm -hmm. The middle world is the jaguar or the puma, and that's power. And that's like an electric blue. Mm -hmm. The lower world is the serpent, which is gold, which is wisdom. So it's love, power, and wisdom, truth, love, and energy. Um, that's their sky pacha, you know, middle world, all that. So one day, all the beings gathered and said, we need somebody to go to source just to prove the connection and, you know, show what's going on. So Condor said, well, obviously it's me. I'm, I'm love. I'm Sky Pacha. I'm the one. Well, Hummingbird shows up and says, no, no actually, it's me. And so the beings are like, oh, well, we're going to have to have a competition. So the day comes for the competition to see who gets to the source first. So the day comes and Condor shows up. And there's no hummingbird. So they wait and they wait and they wait. And hummingbirds are no show. So they say, okay, Condor, you're it. Hummingbirds are no show. So now you got to fly up to source and just show us that you're it. Condor says, okay. So Condor takes off and flying, flies up and goes right up to the sun, right up to the source and gets right up to the source and goes just like this and opens up her wings and hummingbird shoots out mm. and wins the race. He hitched a ride the whole way. <laughs> yeah. And in all the mythologies, hummingbird was the smart one. Mm -hmm. um, there's the story that's been around a lot about there was a big forest fire and um, all the animals are freaking out and they're all running and hummingbirds going to the river or the, or the, the water and, and filling its beak with this little bit of water and running back and putting it on the fire. And the other animal's like, well, what are you doing? You're not even making a difference. And Hummingbird says, every little bit counts, and I'm doing my part. And, you know, and then there are other ones where they, you know, some American Indian ones where... There was one that was about how in the mythology is that there was a time you wrote about where 
it was always day and there was no night. Yeah. I was wondering if you could share that story with the blanket and the hole. Yeah, it is a beautiful one. So the the animals, the, the beings uh, were, were are fighting and not getting along. They were misbehaving. So the creator said, I've had enough of this. And he threw a blanket over a darkness and said, I'm taking away the day because you guys are all misbehaving. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't remember exactly which animal, but like Lion said, well, I'm going to go up to the mountaintop and I'm going to straighten things out. And it goes up to the mountaintop and reaches for the sky and has no success. And a couple of other animals, like Bear went up there. I'm Bear. I'm powerful. You know, I'm going to do that. No success. So Hummingbird went up and flew up and just kept poking his beak through the, the blank, the darkness, and letting the light come through for the stars. So Hummingbird was the one. And Hummingbird has always been pretty much sort of the smallest and the wisest. Uh, in all the mythologies, pretty much. It's like Hummingbird saves the day. And now the hummingbird also was also considered a lot about a spirit, about being spirit. Oh, yeah. There right? are many what? mythologies um, of, of people dying and coming back as hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. And they're also considered to be um, the messenger between the worlds. Interestingly enough, before I had all my hummingbird experiences, when I wrote my historical novel, In Without Evil, I named the woman Kuna Mino, which is Hummingbird Woman. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know then. And a big part of the story was that he was trying to find the messenger bird of Tupa that goes between the worlds. And in shamanism, and I know you know this, one of the reasons feathers are so sacred is because they represent the, the flight of spirit. And one of the reasons I've done a, a lot of work with tobacco, shamanically speaking. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons tobacco is such a wonderful method of prayer is because when you blow the smoke, it goes up into spirit and dissipates. And so you can say a prayer, but you can add power to it when you do it with tobacco. And tobacco is also similar to, to sage. In terms mm-hmm. of cleansing and purifying and, and protection, it's a, it's a very powerful thing. And it's a big deal in the jungle. The the tobacco they have there is uh, nicotine rustica. It's five to seven times the nicotine of the crap that they have up here. And it's not full of chemicals. It's pure. Exactly. And it's very powerful. And when I smoke it that way, I don't inhale it. Right. Uh, I have a long history of bad use with tobacco when I was younger, but we won't get into uh- that. <laughs> Never did that myself, but. <laughs> oh God, that was horrible. <laughs> well, wow. I always tell that to, like, um, my mom passed away a couple weeks ago. Hmm, and sorry. I, um, she was 96. She lived, huh. she said, I want to live to 96. I mean, she said that back in her 70s. Wow. And she lived till two months after her 96th birthday. Oh, and she her. was an amazing, I, I was raised um, in an, very unconventional family. We were raised in a vegan commune and we were raised vegetarians and we were never allowed doctors or dentists and all the healing had to be done by just fasting on water. Mm -hmm. So back in, you know, 1962, nobody else was living in a vegan commune in those days. Heck no. So, and, you know, drinking wheatgrass and all the things that do nowadays. My dad was ahead of his time, Mm -hmm. but um, 
I find that both him and my mom, my mom and my dad and other people, and I tell them after the person passes, I always have an altar set up, so which is still going now, and she passed on the 4th of May. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I keep an altar with a candle and a flame always 24 hours a day for at least a couple weeks after the person passes. And I always light sage that I grow myself and make into bundle and burn because I feel that, and I tell them, this is how you can send message or connect to the spirit of someone you've loved. That's mm-hmm. the cease is to have this candle, to have this smoke. And you're verifying that, that it is part of connecting to, to spirit. Yeah. And, um, and then I always say, look for, an animal or a bird or an insect, or there might be something that appears to you that feels like the spirit of that person you've lost. Yeah. So with my dad and and I let the animal come to me. I don't pick the animal for the person. Yes. And so when my dad had his memorial here months after we had, we had cremated him, a hawk came, a red-tailed hawk, and sat on the chairs that we had set up for the memorial. Mm. I've never seen a hawk come underneath a, you know, it's a wisteria overhang thing I have, mm-hmm. and just sit there on the chair like he's at the ceremony, just him by himself, because everything's set up in the morning. Mm. And sure enough, when it was my time to sit down, because I was, you know, conducting this, this memorial, there was only one seat left, and that was the seat that the uh, hawk had been sitting on. Ah, I, I said, you know what? This must be my dad. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I've had moments where I felt a real need to connect to him, and I'd go outside, and I'd just say, I'd really feel like I really need a connection to know your spirit is really there, dad. And the red-tailed hawk comes out of nowhere. I love it. So before my mom passing, a, a, another hawk appeared, and then uh, there was the red-tailed hawk appearing. But that wasn't my mom. And we were waiting to see who could she be. So a few days after she passed, my daughter was walking up our driveway. We have a long driveway. And she found this huge turtle about this big on the driveway. Mm. She said, I think it's grandma. And Me. I said, I think it is too, because grandma's, my father would always say, slowest gun in the west and her always thing was slow and steady wins the race there you go just like the story of a turtle yeah you know here we are in green valley road and the turtle is you know where's the turtle coming from i've lived on this property for 45 years i've seen a turtle twice in 45 years here wow i love it so a few days later so this is like maybe may 10th or 12th so I'm driving up my driveway. I'm coming to pull in off the off the main road, the Green Valley Road, and there's this big turtle sitting there that would get run over by the next car that comes. Oh. So I pull my car over to the side. I rush out to the road, and I don't know what to do because it's a wild turtle. I don't know if it's going to bite or whatever, but I say, you know, it's mommy. I got to pick her up. <laughs> so I pick up the wild turtle. I put it in a bag. I had like a grocery bag, you know, a canvas bag in the car. Uh-huh. Put the turtle in the canvas uh, bag. And I said, I can't leave this here out here. He's going to get killed. She's going to be run over. So I take her out. I have a giant pond and I live in 15 acres. So I knew a safe place to take the turtle. Mm. I take the turtle to the pond. She hangs out. She doesn't run away. We do some video, take photos. 
I'm, pat, I'm you know, patting the turtle on the back. And my daughter was afraid. I said, oh, no, I just lifting the turtle up and looking, you know. Mm. And I'm sure I'm sharing this because any of you listeners who've lost a loved one, I may be laughing at all about as we're saying this, but there's a tremendous amount of truth in what that connection feels like when you just feel that there's a spirit being through an animal or bird or bug or whatever to just connect you and give you the comfort of that person you've lost. That's perfect. So I just had to share the turtle story. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's great because, you know, too, in American Indian mythology, uh, the earth is called Turtle Island. Oh. And the earth, as you well know, is the feminine nurturing. So for that to be your mom to me is like absolutely perfect. And she was a she loved working in the garden and with the earth. That was her favorite thing to do. Yeah. I was only thinking of her as the slowest gun in the West. But now when you're saying that's that's a Mother Earth symbol, that would make a lot of <laughs> make a lot it, of sense. No, that 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 makes sense to me. And in in my experience, all the animal and I've had a number of other amazing animal experiences. And in my experience, you cannot really choose your totem. They choose you. I was chosen. A fox chose me. I I didn't know that that was going to. I accidentally killed a fox and I'd never killed an animal before with my car. Mm. And it was the week before the Mongolians arrived. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know I was going to end up being initiated as a Mongolian Buryat uh, shaman. And when mm -hmm. I told her about the fox, we had to go back to the location in my car with the car that hit the fox. And she did an entire ceremony whipping my infinity car and throwing vodka and milk all over. And she said that the fox protected me, that that fox took, took its life to help me. And so that I would know that I needed to honor the fox. And right. I, I have fox tails that were given to me in Mongolia by scientists that I wear on my shaman clothing. So foxes are, are given to me and I didn't pick the fox. The fox came just like the mm -hmm. hummingbird came for you. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think that it's a matter of awareness just to see, keep your eyes open and you'll see who that person, uh, not person, but who that totem is for you in your life. If you look, you know, if other people look, they'll find that. Mm -hmm. So I have another question and I guess we're, we're getting a little bit, we have, we're, we just hit our hour and we can go a little longer. Okay. Okay. Just shut we me can. up when you, when you've had enough of me, just shut me up. Oh, okay. Well, I'm on this. I come from that same planet. <laughs> <laughs> have, you have to shut me up planet. There so you there's go. two things I want to talk about, and then I can feel satisfied that my questions have been covered. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them is about the wind. And I just wanted you to, to tell our audience, I mean, they can buy the book and read this themselves, but I would love if you would share your explanations and your, because to me, the wind is my nature, um, whatever I most identify with, like some people are sun or water or earth or whatever. For me, it's the wind. Mm -hmm. Your descriptions and information about the wind all hit home for me so much that I just wished you would share about the wind with our listeners. Sure. I've got a great wind story. Okay. Uh, a wind, all the animals, all the spirits are, are elementals. And the primary elementals are earth, air, fire, and water. 
And if you go to Chinese medicine, they include metal. But they're elementals. Mm -hmm. So I was in my shamanic study program on the island of Amantani, which is in the middle of Lake Titicaca, between Peru and Bolivia. Wow. And it, it's a small island. Um, and uh, you go there and you stay with people in their houses. They have one generator. It gets turned on from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night and shuts off. That's it. And there are two temples. There's a male temple and a female temple. The male temple is on the lower. There's like two mountains. Not even big on the, what the island is. The male temple is on the lower part. It's all square angles. And the female temple is round. There's a whole lot to that. I won't get into that because we'll never get, we'll never finish. Okay. So we went to the male temple and the priest there said, we never open this except once a year. But you guys have come a long way and I'm going to open it for 15 minutes for you to do a little ceremony. So we did. Then we went to the female temple. Oh, and by the way, we were, it was a San Pedro walkabout. We did a lot of San Pedro mm -hmm. on this whole thing. So we go to the female temple and we're there and my shamanic teacher started praying to the feminine. Mm -hmm. And he's praying and he's praying and he's really getting emotional and I started getting a little embarrassed for him. He was just going. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I really felt awkward. Well, as he's praying, it was a clear day, clear blue sky, no wind whatsoever. And as he's praying and really getting into it and really getting emotional, a dust devil started. And the dust devil came over right beside me and I had taken off two jackets. And while he's praying and really going, the dust devil came in and lifted those jackets up about 10 feet in the air. Wow and held him there for maybe a minute or two. And I was just, I was, the, my jaw dropped. I was like, I can't believe this, wow. And it just kept doing that, like right there. It was almost like it was just for me. And then, and then it died and then it, and it lowered my jackets back to the ground. And then I totally got elementals. And I was kidding him when we were walking back down. I said, hey Moses, you gonna part the water next? Because like that really blew my mind, right? And so uh, since then, and then all of the research I've done and all that, the air is really considered spirit. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything's spirit, but I mean, the fact that it's invisible, the fact that it sustains us, the fact that we breathe in and breathe out, and the moment that we stop that, we don't exist here anymore, right? And it's everywhere, and it's invisible, and it's life-giving. And so it's considered spirit, pure spirit, because... You can't see it, but a tornado can ruin a place. A hurricane can ruin a place. And when you get into things like that, more hurricanes, then you have like water and air working together. But what I was taught is that when you acknowledge them, they're like, oh, you noticed me. And you get a connection. And you start this subtle inner communication with them. And you can start to have them sort of do things for you. Um, I like this may sound weird, but I can make clouds disappear by working with them. 
I can't do big clouds because that would take all day. I got to pick a good size one because it takes a lot of concentration. Can you but call the notice, wind? Pardon? Can you call the wind? I, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it works because it says you're noticing me. And I've had other experiences. People were laughing at me, but I'm like, I'm telling you right now, we're doing this and it's not going to rain because like I, I, I paid, paid my dues with it. Yeah, okay. And then, and then it didn't rain. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, like that. So the other part of it tied in with this is in, when you're in the jungle, when I'm doing ayahuasca ceremonies, I'm singing to the plants and the animals. And there's a tradition called whistling through the forest. And basically, it's a shamanic thing where you go into the jungle and you're basically saying, look, I know I'm in your neighborhood and I know you can heal me and you can kill me. And I'm right. telling you that I respect that and I'm honoring you and I'm asking you. And so when you're singing to the plants, and by the way, when you're singing, what are you doing? You're modulating air. You're communicating with air, right? When you're blowing tobacco, what are you doing? You're, you're communicating with air, right? So you're singing to the plants and the animals. And you're basically saying, you know, you're the most adorable, lovely thing. I love you. You know, I honor you. Uh, what can you do for me? I, I respect you. And you start to get answers in the amazing way. I'd say one really quick little side story. I'll go off for everyone's side stories, but I was going I love to side stories. <laughs> uh, years ago, I was getting ready for a ceremony. And I was outside in a lot in a nature place. Nobody was around at all. And a fox came up. And I looked at the fox and I looked at me and I said to myself, be cool, maintain your energy. That fox came over to me and rubbed itself back and forth across my legs. Like, like a cat does. Taking, and, and I wanted to pat it, and I'm like, no, don't move. Just, you, you, this is so magic, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I did that for like a minute or two. And then it went off back about 10 feet. And then it kind of turned around, looked back at me. And it was kind of like, well, how do you like that, buddy? And then it just went off. It was magic. Just magic. So, so all of them are tied in. But everything is sustained in the air, you know? The air is what connects everything, and the air is what gives us life. The, 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 the air is very powerful, and, and it's invisible, and yet you can see the movement. You can see you know trees and rustling and all that stuff that comes from the air. So the air is a primary, very powerful elemental, as are all the other ones, but the air is kind of extra special in a way. And, and then there you go. Hummingbirds are the masters of the air, right? So, Right. In the facts, you were saying, I didn't even know they had, was it? six air sacs that what their, their whole body is composed of air yeah they're more air than anything else in, in many respects yeah and the, the way their feathers are and the tubules tubules i think they're called and all of that mm -hmm. um yeah they are the masters of the air they're they're it well the last question i have and if we go off to side stories it's okay <laughs> is and it, it's in regard to this book. And you can see, I really loved your book. Mm, thank you. Um, it, it's just that it was like, I couldn't believe somebody wrote about the things that I've thought or had question about that have to do with hummingbirds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of information you had. So you write something. And so I'd like you to explain why picaflor, meaning the hummingbird, I guess, mm -hmm. is considered to be the nerve endings of God. You know, somebody told that to me some years ago, and I thought, wow, 
how profound is that? And if you're a good writer worth your salt, anything that's good that comes near you, you steal it. <laughs> right? So I stole it. And but the more I pondered on that and the very deep and profound truth of that, you and I are talking right now. Hummingbird connects to spirit. If you look at the world around you and you think of energy, and shamanism is all about energy. And if you think about you know, like overall sort of in shamanism, there's really no such thing as good and evil. Mm -hmm. It's levels of awareness, mm -hmm. right? If you're down in the dark, you're ignorant. Uh, and you know, I don't mean that in a, uh, you know, a derogatory way, mm -hmm. but you're down in the dark, you don't know. Right. And so what happens? You fear what you don't know. You fear the dark. Mm -hmm. And of course, this real shamanic work is facing the dark. So as you go through things, you rise up in awareness and your frequency raises. In terms of reality as we know it, physical reality, if you think of the sun, the sun is primarily hydrogen and helium, the two least dense, fastest moving elements in the periodic table is the sun. And if you think about the sun, the sun gives energy unconditionally. And life as we know it would not exist without the sun. There's a, there's a great um, quote from Hafez, or Hafiz, I go back and forth. He says, um, even after all this time, the sun never once says to the earth, you owe me. What, look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky, right? So if you think about that and you think about the hummingbirds and you think about the magic of their color, their feathers don't have those colors. It's the way that they reflect the sunlight. Mm -hmm. And in mythologies, like in, in, in the Aztec mythology, they consider them to be reincarnated, reincarnated warriors because they're all colorful and they're moving and they're fast and they're... Right? So in terms of a connection between the sun with them reflecting that love, that unconditional giving of energy. And the fact that they're moving through the air, they are that manifestation. And they connect us with the spirit world in my universe. Everything I'm telling you right now exists in my universe. That's fine. Yeah, nobody else has to agree. You know, no, saying, no. this is how it is, right? Not right. No, this is how it is. This is in your, this is how it is for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is that connection and the fact that they're so beautiful and the fact that they give life to flowers and they pollinate the flowers. Um, and just to, you can sit there all day and watch them. They're totally magical beings. And the fact that they, that they have the biggest heart. So, you know, in, in shamanism, and this is true in ancient Egyptian thought, our heart is the center of our personal universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the lungs and the kidneys, those are like the planets, but the sun is the, the center. And in shamanism, that sun connects to the sun at the center of our solar system, which gives life. And that connects to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, all the way back to source. So there's that deep connection. And there you have the hummingbird, the beautiful flitting colors of magic with the biggest heart of any animal ever, you know, proportionately speaking. Mm -hmm. 
um, and their brains are, are bigger too. And, and we, but but the heart is the thing, and and the path of shamanism is all about the heart, and the path in shamanism and the path in the medicine plants and all that is really the journey from the head to the heart. You can be personality driven, ego driven, or you can be essence driven. Essence driven is the heart. There's a whole other thing. I won't go off on that because we'll be here for the next year and a half. <laughs> but 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 the essence of that is heart. It's all about heart. Ayahuasca is heart. Ayahuasca is the dark feminine. Ayahuasca is considered the mother of all the other plants. And you learn to reconnect with your heart through the lessons that you learn from your ayahuasca experience and other plants too. But I mean, ayahuasca is the mother of all the other plants. So it all, it all fits in. And the fact that um, the heart is there, the heart is for us, the heart is in the hummingbird, the heart is in the sun, the heart, it's, that's really the ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. And the heart is superior to the, to the mind. The heart is connected to the feminine. Intuition is superior to logic. You know, you can sit there and I can, you and I are talking and I'm stringing words together and you're listening and you're putting it together in your mind. But you can see something and suddenly realize that these 27 things that you were thinking about, you suddenly get this, right, this revelation, because that's intuition. And intuition can do all those things at once and make, boof, you get an epiphany, right? Those are the best. But you got to pay for that. Mm-hmm. There's no, what they say in the jungle is that all the discomfort that you go through in the plant diet, and there's lots of discomfort, is the price you have to pay to prove that you're worthy of the knowledge and the gift that the plants have to give you. Which fits in with what you said a while ago about the fact that, you know, growth is not fun. Growth is painful. Growth is work. There's, 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 I've never seen really any fun about it. Not me either. <laughs> Once you do it and you get the results and you're, and you're more aware and you're suddenly having, you know, intuitions that you didn't have, it's worth it, but you got to be ready to pay the dues and go into the dark. You got to go in there. And most people don't want to do that. It, well, cause it's a, I've done some of that work. Uh, and um, you, it's the same thing about having been initiated as a shaman. It was a very tough experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not a walk in the park. Nope. And it's very physically demanding on your body. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I've had shamans here doing um, ceremonies or sort of exercising the negative out of someone who's having a lot of problems, these people afterwards that are doing this kind of exorcism or whatever the word would be of, you know, channeling out the negative and, you know, cleansing the person's. They're exhausted afterwards. These, the, it's mm-hmm. not. It's not a. Uh, then they go back and say, "Oh yeah, let's have dinner now." Yeah, no, right. they've just done some incredible. You know, in Mongolia, and in the Weecholes, I've only experienced shamans as being the doctor, the therapist, the mm-hmm. the house welcomer. The I mean, all the different possible roles. Mm-hmm. these are all incorporated into the shaman and there are shamans that are doing different things. They only work with maybe dying people or they are the ones who always bless the, the opening of a new space or yes. So um, it's a, uh, but for those two cultures, I feel that, and I think in Mongolia is the oldest shamans in the world. The, 
uh, reindeer shaman that live that's, up. Uh, yeah, that's the roots. Yes. And well, this was on the other side. This was in Mongolia in an area very close to Siberia. Of course. That, that, and that's where the word shaman came from. Yes. And, and I sometimes I feel like I always feel sort of shunned by uh, Native Americans in the United States. Mm -hmm. I've always been embraced by cultures in other places. And um, I, I understand that the wounding is so intense in the United States of what has happened to the Native American. But my theory is that everyone should share their knowledge, that yep. that would be really the best way to go. Um, so I don't know much about my experiences have all been with cultures in other countries mm -hmm. and I'm very, very grateful for it. As you can see in all these masks behind here on the wall. Amen, sister. Yeah, 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 for sure. So yeah. this brings us to the end of our show, but I always ask my guests if there was anything, any word of wisdom or healing or anything, any message they want to leave before we sign off love love it's all about love shamanism is all about energy it's learning to master energy it's really that simple when you get down to it um as frank zappa would say the the crux of the biscuit <laughs> when you get down to it is that fear is contraction and love is expansion mm -hmm. That's the core of it. So um, I, I hope, uh, thank you for having me on. I hope all the listeners go out and tell everybody that they know to everybody <laughs> all by my books. And this is, um, I'm finishing up books number 19 and 20 right now. I'm just um, trying to finish one and it's been I going know. on for 20 years now. <laughs> and, I, and I'm all over the map. I have horror, I have science fiction, I have memoirs, I have nonfiction. I have a lot about visionary experience. So they can find me. You're probably going to post my website. Yes, I'm going to put on the description about our show. Yeah. Below that, we'll have whatever you sent me uh, that you want. Yeah. That will all be there. And they, they'll also be able to go to your website or perfect uh, and uh, books, whichever. And I, I watched some of your two and three minute, I don't know if they're trailers or what you want. Oh, to yeah. And I highly recommend them also. And I think they're very well produced between the music and, and the images. Mm, uh, so whoever's you. doing that for you, I think you're doing a great job with that too. Bless you. Uh, so I'll just, I'm going to confess something real quick. Okay. I'm the one that's doing it for me. Ah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I do all that. That's amazing. So well, um, th thank you for having me on. And, and from you and me both, Big love to Stanley Krippner. Yes, yeah, Stanley, we love you. We love you in, in, in all the different areas and all the different spaces that we are in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and by Amen. the way, I only live 45 minutes from Stanley, so I can zip and see him, which we, I, I, we have to, I have to have him come up here. We're ready for a visit up here. Right. But I had a lovely luncheon with him a couple of months ago. And we had a wonderful time and we laughed our heads off and it was really a good, have some lovely pictures of that day. Awesome. So in fact, maybe I'll put one of those pictures up on this, on this show. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll put the picture of our last lunch together and I'm going to make a note here. And I also will put up a picture of your wonderful book, Pika Floor. I, I just loved it. 
Oh, bless you. Thank you. You really made my day. Thank you. You made my day. And to all our listeners, we want to thank you for subscribing to a small, medium at large podcast. We love that you send comments, that you share. And, and anyone has guests they think should come on the show, feel free to send them to us. If anyone wants me on a show, feel free to contact us. Have a wonderful day and may a hummingbird come into your life too. Bye and thank right. you. Thank you. Oh, and remember, stories can heal. So share your stories today. <laughs>